Hello, you found Dogmatically Imperfect Condensed Imperfection, a condensed version of Season 1 episodes in a more digestible time frame. Today's session, The Sin Sickness of Religious Arrogance. My tradition says, the Bible says we have to believe and confess. And I show you, in this very same scripture, where Jesus said, you just have to keep the commandments. This conflict breeds uncertainty. And if I had to identify the core difference in the change of my theological outlook, I would have to say it's the level of uncertainty that I now accept and in many ways embrace. The key to even being able to consider this contrary idea about eternal life is being able to put yourself in the position of never having heard Paul. You have to pretend that you never heard about grace, to truly hear Jesus. You have to hear the joke without knowing the punchline. You know, what's black and white and red all over, right? You have to pretend you don't know the answer is a newspaper because the answer is a skunk with diaper rash. (laughs) So, I mean, you have to do a thought experiment and hear these passages as if you had the same mindset as the people that Jesus spoke with. All the disciples knew was, God's on our side, who the hell's on yours, and if you're against us and God, well, God's going to rain down fire on you because you oppose us. And we actually don't have a problem with identifying with that part. We still think that's God's nature. Even today, I mean, we're just like the disciples. They kept looking for an earthly kingdom, and so do we. But we can't hear Jesus say, you don't even know what spirit you're of. I didn't come to destroy humanity, but to save it. Let's look at it. Uh, Turn in your Bibles, if you have them. Again, remember, you have to see this from the Omega View perspective. And it's right there in plain view. And we're just going to start at verse 28, because it really describes the level of awe and authority and respect that the disciples had for Jesus, and rightly so. And it also illustrates just how stuck they were in their old dogma. Okay, let me grab my glasses. And verse 28 is where it's going to start. Now, it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And how far are we going to go? We're going to go a ways, okay? But just listen to what's going on. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his of. Uh, of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened, as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Hear him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Now, uh, in verse 49 is where we're at. Um, now John answered and said, Master, we saw you, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we forbade him 
because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. I want you to think about that for a second. If you're not against us, then you're on our side. That's interesting. Now, it came to pass that when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now we're getting somewhere, okay? And sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. Now, remember, the Samaritans, uh, the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. And the Samaritans didn't like the Jews. And guess what? The Samaritans are actually Jews also, but they didn't follow Judaism. They had a different form of Judaism. So these are two different sects of Judaism. And they hated one another. Hmm. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? The book tells us we know what to do with people who oppose us. We call down fire. In fact, I think it's First Kings. If you want to go there, you can go there. I don't have time for it right now. But if the, the book tells us, the written word says that people who oppose us, we call down fire. That's what we do. That's where they got this idea. They did, this isn't their idea. This isn't James and John's idea. They're reaching back into their understanding of the written word that they think is the word of God. And they propose this to Jesus. Verse 55 is one of our key verses. But he turned and rebuked them. Now, like if you're in the NIV and other scripture, other versions, which is a whole other, right? That's a whole other topic (laughs) that we don't have time for either. But different versions say a different way. And some of them just say, well, he rebuked them. And some versions have the actual words that he rebuked them with. And this particular version, now I know this one's correct, this particular version. I know this because um, it's got my dad's name on it right here. So I know this one is the actual proper one. Um, And it says right in here, verse 55 again, he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Verse 56, for the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Jesus didn't have a problem with these people. So so Jesus continually told them and showed them that he wasn't against anyone. And, And actually, here's something that I find interesting. Depending on your dogmatic alignment, you group the verses together differently. And the King James, now, when I was doing my study, this is part of the reason why it was a little bit different when I'm doing it live than when I was doing my study, because I was doing my study on my iPad, and I don't have my iPad in front of me right now. So when I'm, when I'm looking it up, and I'm looking at my King James version on my Bible app, it has the little chapters broken up into sections. And your Bible probably does that too. Now, this one, uh, my dad's Bible, doesn't have the little sections um, the transfiguration, right? So there would be before verse 28, it would just say the transfiguration. And then we could, and then once you get down past that part, it would say, uh, Jesus casts out the demons of the little boy or whatever the caption would say. Okay. 
um, the little subheadings and they summarize what the next section's about. Now, like I said, in verse 28, it's the transfiguration and that lasts until about verse 42. And even though that segment clearly ends in verse 36, when the voice had ceased and now it happened on the next day. So it's the next day, right? So, uh, but the caption on, on my Bible app it goes all the way down to verse 42. So, uh, but the next subheading is the shadow of his passion. Now I have all these written down in my notes, right? The shadow of his passion, even though in verse 43 to 45, it clearly is related to an overlooked account uh, that's starting in verse 37. Now it happened that one day there was a multitude came down from to meet him. That's where it started, right? It's no wonder we've been putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. And the next subheading, right, because I have it in my notes here, on the way to Jerusalem. Really? That's the significance of this section? On the way to Jerusalem? There's nothing that happened other than they were on a road trip? Oh, look at the mountains. Oh, look at the, look at the trees. Oh, look at the squirrels. No, there was a little bit more, something more significant, right? Right, they start in verse 51, but I would give it a different subheading and start in verse 46 all the way to 56. Verse 46, then a dispute arose among them, which about who would be the greatest. And here's what my subheading would be. The them is the us. And let's just take a look at it again, right? That subheading, verse 46 through 56, the them is the us. And let's derive some dogma from a couple important verses. Verse 56, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. In other words, he's not against the them. I don't know if you're hearing me. The disciples had a them in their mind, the Samaritans. The Samaritans are a them to the disciples. And they want to call down fire. And Jesus is like, you don't know what spirit you're of. I'm not against them. I'm here to save them. I'm on their side. And now let's look at verse 50. If you back up, Jesus said, because remember they were, they, the disciples found a guy that was casting out demons in his name. And like, but they're not with us. So we told him not to do that. Hey man, stop that. You don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus said what in verse 50? Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Listen, this is what it means. Since Jesus is not against the them, Jesus is for them. The, dis the disciples were left scratching their head, right? They're like, well, man, we don't know what's going on. They couldn't reconcile what they thought they knew with what Jesus was telling them. But they knew whatever Jesus was saying had to be true because they just got done witnessing the transfiguration. Well, what's the confusion? Look, there are parts of the dogma that we should cling to. And there are parts of the dogma that we should let go of. And these guys had never heard of grace by faith. Jesus sent the disciples in verse 2 of this chapter, to go out and preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. What did Jesus preach the kingdom of God was? We've gone over this. 
we've gone over it. Uh, you know, if you don't want to, don't judge. So you're not judged because whatever measure that you judge, that's what you're going to be judged by, right? If you want to receive mercy, show mercy, right? Forgive to be forgiven, all those things, right? Consider what you would want others to do to you and do that to them. That's what see, we've gone over it. And in the next chapter, again, in chapter 10, Jesus sends out his 70 disciples, telling them to do the exact same thing. And later in chapter 10 is where the expert in the law asks him about eternal life. And we find out that our works determine our eligibility in direct conflict with what, what, what we understand our uh, teaching to be, that we're saved by grace, not faith, uh, or uh, by, by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that's not what Jesus said. Anyway, I mean, I don't want to harp on it, but it's just right there. And then we see Jesus forgive people when they can't even do right works, right? He forgives before they ask, or they even decide to repent. He forgives before they even knew they did anything wrong. And someone said, well, Jesus never did that. You're exactly right, except for when he was on the cross. That's kind of confusing, isn't it? And later on, later on, Paul reconciles these seemingly conflicting dual realities and he calls it grace. Because how else can you describe it? Especially from the, from the perspective of Saul of Tarsus. But let's not even go there yet. I mean, I keep getting ahead of myself. I got to stay I got to stay locked in right here. And I'm going to let you in on the biggest one of the biggest revelations. Okay? Get ready, get your little notepad out and your mental notepad and write this down. You know, if you're driving, please don't take your hands off the wheel. Remember, don't violate wisdom to try to gain wisdom. That doesn't make any sense. Look, and here it is. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know anything. Say it again. The more you know, the more you realize that you just don't know anything. And we, we get a glimpse from Paul of how much he knew and what he realized he didn't know at all. Let's, in fact, let's, let's go there. Philippians chapter 3. Again, please don't violate wisdom. Why do you keep saying don't violate wisdom? We heard you the first time. Because I know some people. I know some people. You got you to say it every time. Okay, so uh, <laughs> Philippians chapter 3. Let me get my glasses again. Here we go. Starting in the first verse. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the, in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. Boy, that's interesting. I didn't plan this at all. Look, when I said don't violate wisdom, it's not tedious for me to repeat the same thing to you over and over. But for you, it's safety. Okay, good. Verse 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of multi-mutilation. There's a little dash. There's a multi and then lation. So, mutilation. Uh, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. First of all, we already know that this is probably earlier on. We are the circumcision because later on he's like, nah, circumcision isn't a thing. And we have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised on the eighth day. Now, this is where 
he's going to tell us what he knew. Okay. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal. You want to, how zealous was, was Saul? You want to know? Okay, let's find out. Persecuting the church, right? Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. If anybody was going to do the commandments, it was Paul, Saul rather, right? Okay. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. The things that I, listen to what he's saying. The things that I thought I knew, they are loss when it comes to Christ. They, in fact, turn it around the other way. The things that I thought were advancing me were really holding me back. The things that I thought put me in right relationship with God were actually putting me outside of right relationship with God. They were the opposite of the things that God wanted me to do. Listen to what Paul's saying here. Where am I at? Where am I at? Verse 7 is where I was at. But the things that were gained to me, the things that advanced me, the things that benefited me, that I thought benefited me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of, the, uh, of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them, this is okay. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through the faith in Christ, the righteousness which is God by faith. This particular version says it, says rubbish, okay? It's a very, how should we say? Uh, it's a kind word, right? It's a very um, safe word. Other other versions say dung. But listen, the things that Paul thought he knew, I'm struggling a little bit because I'm not trying to be offensive to people, but I need you to understand what Paul is saying here. He says that the things he thought he knew, that he thought were gained to them, hear me, but don't turn me off. He counted it as bullshit. Dung. You have to have the descriptive in there. That's why I said it. Forgive me for saying it. And in verse 12 and 13 and 15, he says, one thing I know, so let, me, let me drop down. Well, let me, let me just keep reading, right? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering and being formed, conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain the, resu uh, attain the resurrection from the dead. Now listen, this is where we, we gets interesting. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay, lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold for me. Verse 13, brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended anything. Look, I, look, I used to think I had the thing. I'm not telling you I have the answers now. I'm pushing towards the answer. Okay? 
But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind me. What things? What things? You, wh- Let me tell you, when I was brought up in this, okay, the way that I read this, the way that this was presented to me, this is always presented as when I was in the world, when I was not saved, okay? And that is not what he's saying. He is not saying, I forget about all the times when I, when I wasn't doing what was right in God's eyes, right? He's not saying, when I was just living my own life, doing my own thing, I'm going to forget about all that. And now I'm really going to focus on what God wants for me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, everything that I thought I knew from the, from the written word, Look, circumcised on the eighth day, shall we go down the list again? Everything, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee, blameless in the law, all the stuff, right? He says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things that are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, therefore, let us, as many as are mature... Have this mind, and if anything you think, and if in anything you think otherwise, listen to this, listen to this. Let me read it again because I was stumbling on it, okay? Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, if you're mature, that means you, okay? Have this mindset. What mindset is that? That you forget the things behind and press towards the thing that he's figuring out. And if any of you think otherwise, God's going to reveal even this to you. He's saying, one thing I know, I didn't have the answer then, and I was wrong. And I'm not saying I have the answer now. No, 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 no. I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm chasing after the answer. And I encourage you, to do the same thing. That's what Paul is saying. And it's like this. Saul of Tarsus was like, I know that 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 these Jesus people are against God and God wants me to cut them down. And then Paul says, man, I thought I knew what I thought I knew what I thought I knew what I thought I knew until Jesus showed me what I didn't know at all. And I'm echoing Paul's sentiment. One of the fundamental flaws of dogma, any dogma, is its confidence and self-assurance because it's fundamentally based on a flawed human understanding of God. Human understanding of God. This confidence tethers you to the flawed dogma, not the true God, ma. Listen, let me say This confidence, this confidence in your dogma, it tethers you to the flawed dogma, not the true God, ma. You've got to unknow what you knew. Yoda said it to Luke, right? You must unlearn what you have learned, right? You have to unlearn. And Paul had to unlearn and sever his tether to his dogma. He had to consider it dung. I'll use the nice word, right? He had to consider it rubbish. He had to consider it beep. He had to consider it that. And Paul had a hard time doing that. 
If you look at Romans chapter 9, Paul is trying to reconcile what he was brought up in with his reality. They didn't match. In fact, let's just go there. Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read a bunch of this, right? And I'm reading it not for the sake of, uh, like, we don't have to go through the whole thing. But I want you to just hear what's going on, right, as we read this, okay? So Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And this is Paul again, right? I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing my, me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Hmm. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they're not all Israel who are Israel. Hmm. They're not all Israel, who, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. So not all the children of, right? So it's through Isaac. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So wait a minute. He's like, okay, wait, wait, wait. We have the people of the flesh, and we have the people of the promise. The flesh of the promise, the flesh of the promise. Which one is it? Which one is it? Which one is it? That is, okay, uh, verse 9. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil. Oh, listen to that. They didn't do good or evil, yet they were still in the womb that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Okay? It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. And as it's written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Boy, that's... This is where we get into the stuff, right? What, sh what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? That God's going to hate a kid before he's even born? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I, I, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whoever I have compassion. So God gets to choose who he, he's sovereign. And I'm going to tell you, this is what, this is the answer that people used to bring to me. Well, you know, God heals and he doesn't heal. God's sovereign. You know, forget about the promises, right? Yeah, he made a bunch of promises, but he's sovereign. He doesn't have to live up to those if he doesn't want to. Something wrong. So then it's not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, this is what we know, right? According to the, what was written, he has mercy on whom he wills, and, and who he wills he hardens. This is what our scripture tells us. And we're like, yeah, that's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. Okay, well, let's continue. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who's resisted his will? Then how, if he has mercy on whom he's going to have mercy and hardens who he wants to harden, then why do we have to follow the commandments like Jesus said, right? And why is there judgment on this or that or the other? If he's just going to pick the winners and losers in the first place anyway, then why do you judge it at all? 
for who has resisted his will? Verse 19, right? Verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay? For the same lump to make one vessel for honor and one other for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, well, I will call my people who were not my people. That's weird. And her beloved who was not beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There shall be called sons of the living God. Oh my goodness. We got all kinds of confusion going on. And Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel as the sands of the sea, right? The remnant will be saved. Only the remnant. And this is where, this is one of those, this is one of those um, dogmatic imperfections. Only the remnant are going to be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in the righteousness because the Lord will make it a short work upon the earth. And as, I, and as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath left us a seed, we would, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel... Pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they didn't seek it by faith. But as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as is written. Because, see, look, he's going back and forth. He's going back and forth. Hey, look, it's written over here, this, 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 this. But we're seeing this over here, this, 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 this. It's written over here that uh, Jacob I've loved, Esau I hated. And, but... But then all of a sudden, what are you going to say? Well, why are you holding me to a, a, a standard that I can't meet up to because you decided you hated me before I was even born? Why are you going to hold me to a standard, God? That doesn't make any sense. And he's like, well, who are you to say? Right? That you that the creator, God is sovereign. He can do what he wants to do. But now all of a sudden we find out we got a people who wasn't a people. And now, and now the Gentiles get it by faith. And even though the Israelites are trying to get it through the law. He's going between these, he's wrestling with these contradictions in chapter 9. And he's referencing a bunch of conflicting thoughts about who's on the right team and why. The uncertainty is baked in. The point was not to find out what the conclusion of the thing is. The point is to point out the uncertainty. And when you look at the chapter, you have to wonder if he thinks God is schizophrenic. Make up your mind, God. We've always read this from a place of certainty in our resolved dogma. It is written. Blah, 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 blah. Yes, it is written. And this is, and, and he's clearly saying that everything that I thought about before, I thought it was gain to me. I call it beep. And even though we all resolve it differently, which means it isn't really resolved at all, except in our own minds, right? So, Listen, and you say, that's not true at all. Well, that proves my point. We haven't really resolved it, have we? Now, you think you have it resolved in your mind, and I think I have it resolved in my mind, which means it isn't resolved at all. Uh, thank you for proving my point. But when we look at this passage with the example of Jesus in the earth, and Peter with Cornelius, and Saul himself, 
These guys are trying to unlearn what they've learned. And when you're in the process of this kind of a life change, the only thing you know for certain is that you had it wrong. And trust me, you learn to be very cautious about making absolute statements. Why? So that you don't fall in the same trap as before. And I've thought about this quite a lot. And it's a lot like mathematicians. They think about things, right? They form a theory and then they try to work out out the math, you know, to prove it. They're like, well, carry the two, right? Okay. And if the math works out, they have a proof. And that's all great until another mathematician comes along and says, no, 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 you don't carry the two. You carry the three, right? They have a competing idea along with a proof of their own. And this is especially true in physics. These mathematicians are called theoretical physicists. And based on their current knowledge of physics, they form theories and try to work work out those theories with proofs. And they have major disagreements. And they have math wars. But here's, in fact, if you've ever want to look it up, it's, it's, if you're into this kind of thing, and I kind of am, obviously, because I'm referencing them, but if you look up on YouTube math wars and stuff, there's an endless number of them. And they, well, this and this, or this theory, or this theory, or this theory, right? right. But here's the main difference between theoretical physicists and theologians. One comes from a place of certainty, condemning anything contrary, and the other has a theory and tries to prove it, unless someone with a competing theory proves theirs first. So here's what I've done. I've come to think of myself as a theoretical theologian. If for no other reason, it's a vaccine against the disease of arrogance. Vaccines are bad. Vaccines are bad. Look, arrogance, pride, um, are we going to go there? Okay, the pride for the fall. Da, 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 da. Are we going to go there? No. Okay, but it's a vaccine against the disease of arrogance. A theoretical theologian. Like Paul. Look, I consider everything I knew as rubbish. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put it all behind me. And I'm going to reach. I'm going to keep chasing what God has shown me. And he's shown me that, 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 you know, circumcision is not a thing. Everything I thought I knew, man, it's not a thing. And these people know God just like these people know God. There's only one God. There's a God of the the Jews and the Gentiles. There's only one God. (sighs) Remember what I told my doctor when my daughter was in the hospital? Look, all due respect, I know you're an expert in your field. But I'm an expert in mine. I didn't think I was being arrogant. I thought I was walking by faith. And truly, this is what Saul of Tarsus and all the other religious leaders suffered from. They were sin sick with religious arrogance. So much were they at odds with God that they killed him and slept like a baby at night the height of self-assurance. I mean, look, even Judas knew he was wrong and felt guilty. Think about that. Judas was one step ahead of the Jewish leaders and Jesus forgave the Jewish leaders. Woo. 
I don't know if you felt that. Whew, I get goosebumps about that. This is the kind of thought that only comes from a theoretical theologian. The dogmatic theologian dismisses this thought as blasphemous and heretical and, and sleeps like a baby in their self-assurance. I'm not telling you I have the answers. I'm telling you I thought I did. And I was wrong somewhere along the way. And I don't blame God. That's ridiculous. I know my motives were pure and my faith in my dogma was sincere, but my reality didn't reconcile with those facts. So I take a closer look, a closer look at the example of Jesus and the example of God in the earth, who is Jesus, right? And I do my best to extrapolate from that example. And if Jesus can illuminate how the Old Testament was not verbatim God's word, you don't know what spirit you're of. James, John, I don't call down fire. That's not me. If you want to be more like your father, look, You've heard an eye for an eye, but I'm telling you, pray for those that persecute you. Because if you want to be like God, he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. And if Jesus can illuminate how the Old Testament was not verbatim God's word, then I can take that same example of God's example in the earth, Jesus, right? And measure the New Testament to the example. Oh my gosh. Now you're, look, I get it. When you start saying, that, well, the old covenant is one thing, right? Because, look, God replaced the old one with the new one. But it's based on the old one. That's why we have that. But the new one, you don't mess with that one. I'm telling you, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And the Omega view is where God sees humanity at the end of the story, which is the same as the beginning of the story. Because God is the Alpha and the Omega. We look at God's view of humanity in the beginning and then the example of Jesus and we consider God's view of humanity as affected by thousands of years of imperfect dogma. Right? Compounded, right? What was the response of Jesus? Hmm? Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Look, this is a lot to consider. And many of you have some serious decisions that you're going to have to make. And I'm pointing out some serious, I hate to use the word flaws unless I'm referring to myself. So let me say it this way. I recognized that I had some very serious flaws in my dogma. And if you're like me, you have a rough couple years ahead of you because you can't pretend you don't know about it now. I mean, every decision I made from birth was made with this dogma as my foundation and reason. Not, not just the scripture, but my, my understanding of what the scriptures were, right? The way I was taught to read it, the way I was taught to understand it, the, the things that I left out, the things that I held on to. Oh, we don't leave anything out of the Bible. Okay, well then, okay, I, can't, I don't have time to go there, okay? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Because if you're disagreeing with Jesus when he says how to uh, get eternal life is by following the commandments, then you're leaving that out. And if you're going to leave anything out, it might be a good idea to not leave out the things that Jesus is saying. It might be a good idea. I don't know. That's just me. Now, I had to go back through my entire life and consider my decisions. 
It's been rough. And I'm still navigating the consequences of those decisions. And don't get me wrong. There's a lot of good and a lot of God that comes from this that was factored in. But I had to take a fallback position and assess how I got where I am and how I can point out my missteps. That way, godly wisdom has a voice in the lives of my children. I don't want them to perpetuate my flaws. I want them to learn from my mistakes and do better. And some of you think I'm crazy, right? Some of you recognize what I'm saying, and you know that you're going to have to make some tough decisions moving forward. Some of you won't hear me until an unavoidable tragedy visits your life and you can't reconcile your reality with your dogma. And I'm here to tell you, it's imperfect. Start there. But you can rest assured that God sees you exactly where you are. And God sets aside your faults before you even knew you had one. I hope you've been getting something from these sessions. I've struggled for years with this uncertainty, like real internal conflicting, right? Uh, including bouts of depression, right? And then I knew I had to say something, but I didn't know what and I didn't know how. And I, I mean, I mean, when you're stuck in the middle of it, you're like, I can't help anybody, right? I can't even help myself. May of 2020, the light began to shine on the what. And over the last, wow, it's been like three years now, the how has slowly unfolded and here we are. Thank you so much for sticking around today. I truly hope that you're getting something out of this show because if you are, I'm casting my lot that it's coming from the Holy Spirit. My email's in the description. If you have yabbits or whatabouts, remember, purpose in your heart to see the original goodness in others the way God sees original goodness in you. Love you all. Dogmatically Imperfect with Justin Marson is a production of Original Goodness Media. Thanks to everyone who supports this podcast. If you want to become a supporter of the podcast, there are a couple ways to do that. If you want to support us financially, you can go to the website, originalgoodness.media. The other way to support the show is to share it with others directly or by leaving a review. If you have thoughts or questions that you would like to share, please send an email to yabut at originalgoodness.media. That's Y-E-A-H. B-U-T at originalgoodness.media. Make sure to search for the show on your favorite podcast and social media platforms. Special thanks to The Real Night Terror for our theme music. See you next time.